Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. This week, we're looking at trade unions and collective bargaining. At a time of falling union membership and rising insecure work, what can the Labour movement do to reassert itself in the workplace? I'm Progress Deputy Editor Connor Pope, and I'll be discussing that with my colleagues Richard Angel and Henna Shah, and our guest today, Prospect General Secretary Mike Clancy. I want to start with quite a big topic and then we'll, we'll we'll move on to the the little stuff after that. Trade union membership is falling in this country and has been for some time. Mike, how serious is it and is it taken seriously enough within the trade union movement? I think we're at a watershed moment uh, in terms of the next trajectory for trade union membership. Uh, in some respects, speaking optimistically, uh, we've done well to weather three decades in which the climate has been pretty inhospitable. But I think trade unions would be unwise to not reflect on um, their own contribution to where we are. I think we sometimes fail to talk about what we do most of the time, which is try and encourage prosperity for the people that we represent. And I think we often wander into the zones of criticism that are created for us by others, where we talk too much about the conflict, which is sometimes necessary to influence employers, but is not what we do most of the time. I think trade unions have to really consider how open to change they are. We like to think of ourselves as progressives, but often I think we're quite conservative about change in terms of our own structures. But there are, I think, enough people in the trade union movement, the wider labour movement, uh, and those who are more general supporters, who are encouraging unions to think again about our offer to members. The fact that we even need to talk about an offer. I think sometimes we position ourselves like we have a an undying spiritual truth that we just have to have other people to realize and come along with. Whereas actually, I think we need to reinvent ourselves. And in my own union, I do put it high. I say, I say unless we change in the next 10 years, we, will, we won't invent the 21st century trade union. And if we carry on doing things the way they are, we are, then don't be surprised if we're at you know, United States levels of trade union membership in the coming time. So I think it's a crucial time. I think unions are waking up to it. But as ever, we often talk a good game without actually delivering change. Hannah, Richard, can I just bring you both quickly in on, on this one as well? Because it feels like in the past, 
trade union general secretaries were big public figures who were well known. And now it feels like maybe people only really know about them if they're heavily involved in Labour Party politics, or if they're vilified in the press over strike action. Is there a sense that trade unions don't feel relevant to to the general public? I think in some ways it was ever thus on those issues. Mm. You know, we've had the sad passing of Brenda Dean recently. And why was she a big figure? Because she led a huge strike and and she became a kind of uh, national figure through that moment. So I think in some ways it is kind of ever thus. and, And that was why the trade union figures were what they were, because they you know, symbolise mm. power uh, and power got you voice in, in public space. Um, that feels particularly expressed almost only through politics at the moment, sadly, within the Labour Party. But the very real work that I think lots of uh, trade union leaders are trying to do to meet uh, the challenge that Mike was talking about um, does show their relevance um, all the time. And one of the things that Prospect put out on Twitter the other day, which I uh, had had, had uh, piqued my interest was the correlation between union membership and the percentage of the economy that goes to the mm. kind of top one percent and obviously the higher the membership is the uh, the lower essentially the return is for just the bosses class if you will um and and, and the better it is for workers um overall so a kind of reminder of that being um what's important and you know i used to work for a, a trade union community and we were not one that got massive amount of public um press or attention and we never really talked beyond our core issues of representing um, our industry but when we saved a steelworks we saved five and a half thousand people's jobs and arguably a whole city structure um, and its economy so the work is more important than ever the danger is that it's not just a problem in the uk this is a big problem i worked in australia for a while and they equally have I think I think that we're down to fourteen percent. Is it trade union density in in the private sector? That's right. Yes. And they're at fifteen, sixteen. You know, it's very, very similar and very worrying that this is a kind of global trend of what is happening. And the kind of free rider problem is very real for trade unions today. And that's why people have to think about their offer. There is a values part of what they do, of course. But you know, if very real people aren't setting up standing orders and direct debits mm-hmm. and and opting into our movement, then the values will wither away and that would be a sad loss. So I really think we're seeing a cultural change in the world of work and more broadly as well. From what I can see, I think since the 1980s, you've seen the world of work change and certainly my peers sort of feel happy or lucky to have a career at all. And I think they take it for granted that power is in the hands of the employers. And I don't think we've seen many collective wins that you can sort of see from outside the labor movement Mm. for a little while now, especially if they're going into creative areas or freelance areas or doing casual work. I think they're more concerned with sort of making ends meet with, you know, the rising cost of living and fears about paying back their student loans than they are really about expressing solidarity in this way, because I just don't think that they think that they can achieve an excellent result by being part of a trade union. I think that's wrong. Um, But I think we have some way to go in convincing young people that trade unions are something that should be part and parcel of normal life. A couple of weeks ago, there was the High Pay Centre's annual report, and that found that, uh, you know, CEO pay is continuing to rise while employee pay doesn't even keep up with inflation. Is obvious injustices like that a kind of way of making collective bargaining uh, seem relevant again, do you think? 
Well, look, a uh, uh, couple of the comments that I'd just like to, to touch on before mm. I, I answer that. One um, thing I'd like to share is that we recently did some, did some work with Unionen in Sweden. And obviously Swedish institutional mechanisms, collective agreements are some, mm. and as a very different terrain to this country. But Unionen um, transformed themselves uh, in recent years. They're probably now the fastest growing union in the world in technical middle management and other occupations. And there was a line in their presentation to us, which, you know, not often after when you've been around for a while do you, re- you see things which are new to you, but it was a really pithy point, which was Unionen's pitch was to move from being helpers in distress to improvers. And what that said to me is that some things that we're trying to do is we're trying to be a constant in members' life, not episodic when they have a problem. Because if you're episodic when they have a problem, then you're only touching them uh, periodically. Um, And many people don't have problems, but they have things they'd like to solve, advice, advice they may need, and indeed guidance. Now, I think for the contemporary workforce, which now um, shows itself in so many different ways, structurally and so on, unions have got to think through, therefore, the messaging and what they're doing. There are parts of our economy where sort of just as trade unionism needs to respond to exploitation um, in all its forms. Um, And we have even some of that in Prospect, where we've had a long dispute uh, with uh, Picture House. But most of the employers that we deal with are reasonable decent and sometimes good. And our challenge is to keep them reasonable, decent and good when there may be shareholder and other pressures against them. So it's more complicated to show your value in those circumstances and also more complicated because the different forms of work. And uh, now we, we represent a large amount of freelancers uh, in um, broadcasting and media since Bechtu became part of Prospect, uh, uh, you know, really changed and transformed our union, gave us a new reach. But one of the things in there is we've achieved a collective agreement on major motion pictures above 30 million. It's got a union clause in there for all the different freelance departments. And it shows you can, where the labor is not substitutable easily, develop a collective process even in uh, that parts of uh, those parts of the economy. And now, explain for just quickly your distinction there between substitutional labor and, and not in uh, freelancers. Okay, well, look, I'm talking really about, uh, there's a very simplistic um, analysis sometimes of the gig economy. If you are a driver and you are substitutable in terms of your driving skill, then your leverage in the labor market and with your um, hirer is constant, correspondingly less. If, however, you are a sound technician, you are a grip or you are um, uh, in uh, any number of uh, important uh, departments in uh, film and TV, uh, your labor is needed, you need to be trained, you bring a skill, you can't be easily substituted, and consequently, you can have a say in the rates and the working practices through your union. And that's what we achieve. Now, um, turning to the point you made about high pay, mm. every year we get the high pay statistics, and every year we rail about them, and every year nothing changes. <laughs> and that's because they are the out put, they are the symptom of a broken economic model that we all know we need to fix, but we haven't actually had a, a political party durably prepared and able to fix it. Because um, the statistic you quoted before about the correlations between um, you know, high pay, collective bargaining, and so on, the evidence is simply unquestionable now. The decline of collective bargaining is corresponding with the rises of inequality. Uh, not just in this country, but elsewhere. Um, I was recently interviewed in the BBC, and one of the points made uh, was, and I kind of covered it really in a way, people have lost the confidence to think that they can influence their workspace. 
So they take what they're given. And unless they can change job uh, and that circumstance and the opportunity for you to change job changes as your life changes and the responsibilities you may get through your life journey, um, they take what they're given and they don't feel they can necessarily influence it. And sometimes they're lucky to feel they're in a job of any structure. Now, this economy is very good at creating jobs, but we also know it's not good at creating sustainable, high-skill, high-content jobs. And I've often felt that the decline in engagement with employees at work, we've got a whole raft of HR-sponsored engagement, voice, and other mechanisms. But what we've lost is independent voice, particularly in the private sector. And I've often felt that a good example is this. If you're at your workstation, your employer wants you to release your tacit knowledge. They want you to improve the organization at that micro level. But the moment you want to say on pay or on the site and location of your work or any security mechanism, they're less prepared in this country to give you that, in, that, give you that uh, say. And consequently, to borrow a phrase, you can sound like a factor in production. And I think a lot of people are cute enough to realize that. And I think our macro productivity challenges link back to that micro issue of how well are people engaged in their workspace? Do they feel like they are jettisonable? And ultimately, unless we address that through a complete reconsideration of the structures that we bring to the workplace, the possibilities giving people collective voice, a renaissance of collective bargaining, and indeed even explaining to people who don't know what collective bargaining is, what its potentialities are, you will continue to have the annual high pay uh, farrago where people are outraged by the uh, correlation between the multiples between medium pay and high pay. So can we just explore that a little bit? Because it feels like this collective bargaining problem that we have is like we've smashed an egg and it's therefore, it's not quite as obvious how you put it back in place because the structure of the economy, the nature of it, um, what ideas have you guys got a prospect about how you rebuild a kind of patchwork quilt, if you will, of, uh, of kind of uh, collective bargaining? Well, first of all, I think we're clear that you won't reorganize sufficiently in the private sector just through organic organizing techniques, employer by employer. You know, we're at 15% coverage, membership density figures you covered before. It's going to need a purposeful, enduring public policy shift, which says that there is value in collective dynamics at, in the workplace, and it contributes to the solving of the productivity challenge. It will contribute to ensuring that the next insertion of technology in the economy is done uh, in a way which is acceptable to working people and which deals with all the potential societal appeal that will bring. For me, a key part, the key stakeholders in ensuring that we can do that are the employers. You need a coalition of the willing, or at least the semi-willing, on the other side of any bargaining table. So we feel that there are some values in some parts of the economy of the focus on a public policy shift in relation to sectoral bargaining. Adult social care is a very obvious example where you could build standards, frameworks, and so on. But if you look at the diffuse platform world, if you look at large swathes of the private sector, these are employers with HR people who have absolutely no understanding of the conduct of collective relationships. They're used to running pay, grading schemes, and one thing or another entirely on their own, um, on their own choice and election. Getting them to understand that they're going to sit in coalition in some form of bargaining format I think is quite optimistic. However, saying that there's an irreducible requirement of public policy in this country to bargain 
if you are an employer of a certain scale, but you can frame those relationships to fit, fit the nature of your business, and you are expected to have an independent counterparty to achieve the balance on the other side of the table, I think you can you can potentially influence more employers to understand that actually their workforce, if they're shaping it with a sensible counterparty, okay, this is something we can live with because we can see that the millennial and subsequent generations do need to have a say. They do need to have a say in the enterprise and it doesn't harm prosperity. And in fact, what, good, what can good collective relationships do? They can allow ventilation. They can allow problem solving. They can allow transformation. Look at the car industry. Look at other industries where unions do successfully understand the skills base, understand the product market, and bargain for the long term. Now, I think you have to therefore talk to the employers and influence them, and you need positive public public policy circumstances. And do you think the union movement's prepared to meet them on their side of that? I mean, I, when I was at well, long before I was at Community, but the Community Trade Union was the first in the country to agree a productivity bonus as part of their agreement is that if if their workers were part of a kind of collective ever to endeavor to improve how things were at work that they would get a return from that and that seemed to be a very positive uh, thing but that was the union movement looking in a kind of quite modernizing way quite a long time ago there's others that still haven't caught up yet it seems well look there's no qu- no question collective bargaining can be attacked um on the grounds of it being uh, almost the lowest common denominator look at all these complex hr pay systems we have and one thing other in this country uh, it's going to drown out the individual um uh, endeavor and everyone's going to get a norm and why would you want to possibly look like that however if the p- current pay setting systems were so uh, valuable to our economy. Why have we got a gender pay gap? Why have we got such a pacity in pay systems uh, more generally? And why do we have stagnating wages, particularly in relation to uh, inflation indices? You have that because actually, ultimately, uh, capital will accrete to itself unless social policy influences it. One of the abiding experiences we've had is that often... Um, Companies that come and buy into our spaces in the UK who are perfectly happy with everything from co-determination to the Polder model or whatever it may be in, in continental Europe, come over here and think, right, we're free from all of this. Let's be um, North American capitalists for a while. I think capitalism endures partly because it can adapt to the circumstances that the social models and norms of the country uh, ask it to accept. Swedish capitalists are successful. They make business, even though there's 80 odd 90% collective agreements. Capitalism will adopt the social conditions that the government of the day create for it. And we therefore have to create conditions in which there is a public policy obligation on uh, companies of a certain size and so on to do these things as a norm. And you create a responsible, uh, democratized, long-term capitalism, which doesn't uh, lead to, for example, the Carillions of this world. And also then you have a proper conversation about the boundaries between public and private ownership, but against enduring duties that actually I think people of all ages would recognize as, as valuable to them. We need to take a short break there, but next we're going to be talking about how young people see trade unions as well as uh, how automation could affect trade unions too. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, 
they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hannah, how young people see trade unions as something that I think you've already touched on a little mm-hmm. bit, but um, how do you see it? What, what are young people's attitudes to the trade union movement and do they see them relevant to the careers that they might want? So I think on an anecdotal level, it's easy to see that unions have sort of drifted from the collective millennial psyche, as you like. Mm. Um, I think part of this has to do with cultural shift. So having things as and when we want them, sort of a pay-as-you-go mentality almost in our society that we see now. Um, I think that's a good thing in certain ways. It means consumer choice has expanded greatly, but it also means that when it comes to things like thinking about long-term agreements or thinking about long-term security, I think we find it much harder to do that now, mainly because actually of the insecurity we see in the labour market a lot of the time. And there was something else I wanted to touch on. Actually, Mike, you mentioned about the gender pay gap in the first half of the um, podcast. And actually, when we're thinking about making unions more attractive to younger members, I saw in one of the recommendations for your report that you'd like the to be a legal requirement to require collective voice for organisations with more than 250 employees, which is the same as for gender pay gap reporting. And um, I think that's a really interesting practical way to think about how we can advertise the union movement or make younger people and new entrants to the workforce understand what the union movement can do for them. Because obviously the requirement to report the gender pay gap is very important. You know, you can name and shame the BBC and ITV and whoever, but actually what we need to show people is that there is a mechanism to change. And if we can show people that actually there is this reporting in place. And the next step to this is saying that you have a collective voice which you can organise within in order to change this. I think that's really powerful. And I think it's a way in which we can help to sort of bridge the gap between, yes, unions are good, they can achieve these rights for you. And actually people feeling, and young people in particular in this labour market, feeling like that could actually happen. Certainly when I was at um, university and I shared a house with a number of other people, um, when I would get my kind of stuff from the union through the door um, and it would have booklets in like telling you about not just the rights you have at work or whatever, but actually all of the different 
things that unions can offer, including things like legal advice. And they were completely flabbergasted. These were, you know, pretty progressive young people who were in favour of unions, but didn't really understand what they did other than, um, you know, uh, take part in strikes and stuff. And, and certainly I found that again a couple of years ago when I know someone who is a manager at um, uh, a media platform and their staff were trying to unionise and they were very much against it. And I was trying to convince them that actually just because your staff unionised does not mean that they're going to go on strike. That, does, that is not like the, the end result of that. Mike, do you think that there is evidence that young people actually will support all of the things that unions do and can deliver, but just don't really realise that that is an element of them? What unions uh, are, are often poor at is explaining that whole range of services that you mm. referred to. But I don't believe ever uh, that there are lost generations. Um, I think there are, uh, I think actually, if you look at what animates people, different generations have their um, engagement points with, you know, unions. Uh, usually with our sort of union, when people have got a bit of a foothold in the workplace and they're going to be around for a while, that's the most likely time that they join. Uh, if there's a higher turnover area, maybe maybe less so. But it might seem strange. One of the things I talk a lot about with my colleagues and our representatives about is what's the compelling individual reason for anyone to to, to join and remain? And that might be strange for a trade unionist because you might think we start from the collective and build back to then the individual services. For me, it's the other way. So, for example, some of our highest levels of membership are in places where there are a daily occupational reminder why it's a good idea to be in a union. Air traffic control, electrical power engineering. Now there, take air traffic control. The workforce is younger. You enter after uh, training at the air traffic school and so on. And I see when I look out in our representative conferences of that uh, particular branch and so on, uh, quite, a, quite an age range, people engaged and obviously a diversity journal, journey going on in terms of uh, uh, the complexion of the air traffic community. Those people join, 90% of air traffic controllers are prospect members. Daily when you plug in, there's a good reason to be a member of a, a member of a trade union. If you can find that compelling individual reason to join, so what, so what is that for them? What? Well, you might need an advocate. You've got you've got an um, you've got a license. You're doing tricky tricky work, and if your license or any issue decision that you make might come under scrutiny, it's a good idea to have a trade union who understands the industry, can influence the working practices, and you've got so exactly the same like teaching, for example. Absolutely, mm -hmm. yeah. you've got peers to go to who can be confidants, who can uh, support you, and have been there. Yeah, you know, compelling individual reason to join. Now, I think um, unions as well. You know, when we were doing this work in Sweden recently, what was interesting. Was a couple of colleagues there had the title uh, who were union staffers, marketing, marketing managers. Mm. Now, one of the things I'm keen about in, tra in trade unions and transforming us is customer service. We'll call it member service. But how well do people experience the journey in the union? How are we marketing to people in a way which is consistent with the values of the union? How do we reach out to people? I've long since felt that if you come to your trade union and you don't have a reasonable service landscape and then you compare us unfavorably to other parts of your uh, experiences, that's not good. Now that's all about waking the union movement up and not being isolationist. Then there's content. Now ultimately, what people want from a union is perennially what they've wanted from a union. They want individual representation, maybe guidance, maybe they don't want to be dictated to. I think that's a very big change. I think your language, your communication edge has to be much more contemporary and thoughtful. 
most of the people we encounter actually are not anti their employer. It goes back to my point earlier, moving from just helpers in distress to improvers. How can my union improve me? How can my union improve my ability to navigate the sort of things I'm going to find in my particular part of the labor market? Unions have got to think that offer through and not just be saying, join us because your employers are poor. Because most, a lot of experiences of the people we'll be trying to recruit is that it's not poor, but at times it can be a bit difficult. I think unions don't do enough to emphasize we are the one constant independent friend that you might have. And if you can build that compelling individual matrix of things, which will vary from different types of membership, you know, what we might offer in freelance might differ from our air traffic control, which is mm, direct right. employment. You then go from there to start raising what we might call consciousness. Thinking about your position in um, the uh, employing bargain. Thinking about how they're treating you for the long term. How are they developing you? Are others experiencing the same thing? By the way, when did you last see, uh, how, are you allowed to talk about pay in this organization? Why can't you talk about pay? Uh, what, why does HR keep certain information in the HR um, pay and grading box? Why don't they share that? And gradually asking, getting people to ask questions that naturally they may not ask themselves to build up a sense of, actually, I can influence this. And if I'm going to be around for a little while, I'd like to influence this with somebody who's got expertise and is absolutely unequivocally on my side. Mm. Not on anyone else's. I, I find actually, sorry, sorry, Richard, I find actually that people around my age in the kind of mid to late 20s are much more likely to talk about uh, pay and salaries with their peers. And I think this might be partly because you see things like uh, gender pay gaps and stuff published uh, in the news and covered uh, a lot better than they used to be. And so mm -hmm. actually there is a, a general feeling that you can talk about these kind of things even if they're not unionizing, they are actually discussing it. And I think sometimes their managers are a bit surprised when they realize that all of their employees know what everyone else earns, which I think is a kind of well, interesting change. We're a channel. We are a channel. And we've got to help people understand again, we are a, we are a channel for expression, like a workplace Facebook. We're a channel for expression and bringing together a community to be able to do something about something. And I believe people of all generations will always want to do something about something. Unions have just got to find platforms and spaces to let people do that. You know, um, branch meetings, accessibility, how we form opinion, conferencing, and all of that will need to constantly evolve and be, be, be thought about. Critical thing is making a welcoming space which has sufficient structure to make competent decisions which are representative on behalf of people. So a couple of things there that I think is fascinating. I had a conversation with somebody at breakfast this morning, a friend of mine, and they joined their employer, Move Sectors, uh, worked for something they really liked and really enjoyed, were given some advice at the beginning. That person has moved on to a very different uh, organisation, let alone part of the organisation, and the advice might not have been the right thing and might be leading them to hot water at the moment. But that was because they took advice from a friend at work that was not a constant or independent, but was their employer who was kind of like, don't worry, we can fudge this, it'll be fine. But what was missing from that was now. And of course, your point about being that kind of independent friend throughout your time in employment is a really strong attribute. And I think uh, if we can find a way of getting that uh, slightly pithier, uh, I imagine, to people, that is really, really key to, to people because I think people would know that about the experience. The other thing I think is there's the kind of other end of what Henna was talking about in which you get people, many of which join in the accounting firms or go in as consultants or whatever, who think, that's not, either not going to happen to me 
or they feel actually a super level of agency about where they are in the workplace. But you're actually, you know, if you go to some of these big accountancy companies, it feels like it's a great graduate job and you've just come out of this thing and I've got a degree and I can speak for myself and I won this debating competition at university or whatever. But you're a worker bee when you're there and they treat you pretty poorly. Law firms are another example. Law firms are, I mean, there's there's quite a few if you uh, go through, we could name and shame. <laughs> Whether we're being fair or not well, is another matter. We'll leave so, that to the review show. Exactly. But, the, but that is, I think, how you kind of uh, raise their consciousness and that the danger is then that they only... Uh, look to their uh, a trade union when they're in the middle of a dispute. And often at that point, it can be... Well, th- I mean, there's also an interesting point that was made about um, you know, people being used to paying for service rather than, as it were, membership and pay-as-you-go. Now, you know, um, ultimately, what, what's often interesting is that, you know, people don't think, understandably, where does union finance come from? Your independence arises from your finance, right? You know, people... There are lots of myths about trade unions, but people understandably don't inquire about, well, how are you funded? It could be anything from, are you like the Citizens Advice Bureau to, are you part of the public sector? People don't realise that the subscription is the collective entry to the insurance and the independence. But unions probably will need to look at um, their model, their finance models, and their pay-as-you-go and their membership models. Some already are. You know, uh, we get a lot of people approaching us with pre-existing conditions. Now, you, you've got the classic responses, well, the house is on fire, she so can't insure it. But on the other hand, sometimes you can do clever things to give these people an eye-opener to the sort of skills and advocacy that, that we, we can bring. So but you're not doing it, others will. I mean, for a while, there was a big campaign on the tube where a quite big law firm Slate was saying... Yeah, Slate and Gordon and others have done it, absolutely. Yep. We've we got good relationships with that firm. Look, there is no... I sat on the employment trials for a long time and employment appeal tribunal. I saw lots of unrepresented people who, if they'd had any form of advocate with them, would have had a better day out in court. There is an entirely untapped market there. We should not... I mean, I've said this to HR audiences. Would you be pleased when the last trade union lights and the last trade union office goes out? Is the end point of public policy that you want to see zero trade unions in the economy? And of course, at that point, they say, oh, no, 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 we're, we're good Democrats and civics. And also, oh, you know, I worry about my kids in that circumstance. And one thing but then you say, well, do you need a union in your workplace? Oh, no, no, of course, we don't need a union in our workplace, no, because we're, we're, we're a good employer. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, the yeah, so, yeah. there's also a schizophrenia about unions. So you can be traveling in on the train, and if it's disrupted by some industrial action taken legitimately for an issue, you're not unhappy. But if you're arriving that morning at a disciplinary hearing, having got off the train, you want the strongest union in the world next year. So there's a whole range of schizophrenia and other things for unions to, 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 to navigate. But you've got to just strip it back and go back to what actually interests people. Not what we want to give them, but what do they want and when do they want it? So can I come in on that point? Because I think that's interesting because one of the reasons why there is this problem of pay in the workplace is the lack of progression through the workplace. People are finding it harder to do training while they're also working, to get promoted at work and for and where they are getting promoted, the pay differentials are barely anything. So if you go from being a shelf stacker to the coordinator of shelf stackers in Tesco's, the difference in pay is actually very very small for people. The opportunity to really train up and go further, and one of the things we have seen since uh, the end of the last Labour government is the decline of uh, union learn, for example, which was, of course, a a state-sponsored public policy way to try and help unions help people move through work. 
what are prospect thinking on, on actually those lines? Uh, before before you answer that because we are running out of time but i do kind of also want to bring in quickly the subject of automation here as well which is obviously going to completely disrupt uh, lots of workforces over the coming decade is helping the kind of tr- transition of reskilling workers and things does that does that also come into this and is that a good way of of showing you know bosses and management actually how helpful trade unions can be in that kind of area well uh, bringing those two points together is actually quite easy because they are linked the best collective relationships uh, between unions and and, uh, employers and so on are built for the long term and they're built with uh, an understanding of the product market of the technological impacts that might be nearby or can be anticipated and what that means then for the content, number, complexion and skill set of the workplace. Now, actually, sensible employers know that that's done better if you have an effective counterparty who can say to you things you may not want to hear, can gather evidence that you may not get through your own employer surveys and together you build a, a, you know, a, a social model of change which is effective for the long term. Biggest problem we have here, you know, in this country is that British capitalism is too short term. Everyone knows that. Uh, we have to create an environment where we have patient capital allied with more constructive uh, social peace. But it's not what we have at the moment is social peace, but on the employer's terms, entirely on the basis that we run these things and you come, you turn up for work uh, and you release your tacit knowledge to us. I think this country has to catch up very quickly with the anticipated predicted or expected consequences for the next technological change. And if we do that on the basis of our current lack of institutions nationally, our current lack of collective engagement with effective trade unions, then British working people in whatever form they come will be uniquely vulnerable. You know, if you look at Germany, you look at other countries, you look at Sweden, you know, for example, I know our Swedish colleagues are trying to build a uh, an institutional regulatory um, conversation about how you handle technological change and AI in Swedish society. The German trade unions doing that as well with the German government. What do we do? Well, we're dissipating all our efforts in Brexit and very little policy formulation at all. And British capitalism is probably worried more about whether they're going to get the goods through ports than what they're going to do in terms of technological change. This is where, whether it be the expression of a broken model in terms of executive pay or through the gender pay gap or the Carillions uh, or anticipating technological change. We are at this watershed moment. These are all interlinked things that we have to address for the current generation of working people and those that are following. Um, I just wanted to make a quick point there. I think bring in what you said, Richard, as well about union learn and learning is about firm size. Um, I think what's really interesting thinking about technological change and automation and sort of the structure of uh, firms that we see in this country is technological change means that we've seen a growth in sort of small startups, many of whom don't have the resources to provide all the things that you were talking about, Mike. Things like um, ongoing training, representation, the idea of having a career that goes all the way through in one firm is something that in the sort of modern British economy of short-term capital looking at the tech startup isn't something that we really have. And actually having a role for unions, creating a strong employee voice as they move around those firms and also to provide an independent training mechanism to support those people as they move through their careers is something we really need to think about. And again, that goes back to the compelling individual reason to join, the union being able to be there as your independent support as you navigate 
the different forms of workspace that's kind of come up. I mean, I deliberately use the word workspace because mm. people will more move in from direct to freelance to direct to freelance and all sorts of different employments across. You know, we haven't even touched upon pension, right? <laughs> and how you create a sustainable uh, post-workspace income because um, I think notions of retirement, we should very, we aren't binning, we should bin them quickly. You know, we have to think about um, that lifespan, how long people will be in workspaces, how they sustain themselves through it. If we're just going to do it on this highly atomized basis of the British economy, then I can only see, not being unnecessarily negative, a very easy race to the bottom here. I'm and afraid. it does seem to me just one very last point, which okay. is that some of it is just about <laughs> if employers have the confidence that they know that the people on the other side are going to go in with some goodwill. I was talking to somebody senior at who said, you know, our, our members are pro their work, that their employer at most times. And that is a very big difference between public and private sector trade unionism. But most companies pay for people to tell them stuff they don't want to hear all the time. They pay. For, they might have their own audit office internally, but they also pay independent auditors. And they sometimes go about saying, oh my gosh, this has gone wrong, that's happened there. These things can be really productive conversations. Absolutely. The danger is that some people fear they're about to be trapped or um, or, or kind of uh, hoodwinked in some way. And I think where you're seeing responsible, um, independent and articulate trade unions um, having a two-way conversation with people, employers normally find they have a really great experience. Well, look, I often often liken um, uh, unions to, to, to your kids. You love them until you get the opinion. <laughs> and you, know, you find yourself having to justify all sorts of things that previously you could just direct. But ultimately you realize that that opinion coming back to you should influence you. And the best managers know that actually being able to either tap on the representative's door or have the representative in and have a conversation that you're not going to get necessarily and an insight is valuable. But what that means is that we have to reconsider four or more decades, almost like reconsider the entire post-war British employee relations, industrial relations settlement. We have to accept that the end point is prosperous capitalism that actually gives good, secure employment to people who want who are in that area. That and so it's an vibrant and successful public sector underpinning all of that, and and therefore, but we have to be clear about what the obligations of capital are to the people of the country, to civic society, to bargain, to participate, to be good corporate citizens to curb excess and to work for the long term because you can't have one without the other. We do need to leave it there. But uh, if you want to hear more on this issue and you'll be at Labour Conference in Liverpool, Prospect does have a fringe event called How Can Labour Revive the Trade Union Movement Priorities for the Next Manifesto on Tuesday the 25th of September in room seven of the Jury's Inn at 12.45. Mike Clancy, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you very much. Every week, I ask a political pub quiz question, which is then answered on Friday's show. This week, I want to know who the only person was to serve as a minister under four Labour prime ministers. Do send your answers to office at progressonline.org.uk or at progressonline on Twitter, and you could win a Progress mug. We need to wrap up now, but we've been delighted to have Mike Clancy joining us today. Do send in your questions and comments through Twitter, email, or best of all, as an iTunes review and we'll respond to them on Friday's show with the best iTunes comment winning a prize. And don't forget to subscribe and write. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And many thanks to the brilliant Caroline Crampton, who produced this podcast. Thank you.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.